Well, during this season of Advent, we're working our way through a series on the O Antiphons, seven ancient prayers that pray for the coming of Jesus using titles given to him by the Old Testament. This morning, we're looking at Jesus as Lord. And so I invite you to stand for a reading of God's word. This morning, I'll be reading from two Old Testament passages. First, from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 11, and then from the book of Exodus. Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 3, Isaiah writes, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And now from the book of Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock with his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In the book of Romans, Apostle Paul writes, That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me read that to you again because it is the most important thing that we could hear this morning. 
In the book of Romans, the apostle Paul writes that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. From the earliest days of Christianity, one of the most essential aspects of the Christian faith is the lordship of Jesus. But what does it really mean to confess that Jesus is Lord? What we're going to see this morning is that the lordship of Jesus is more than just a title. And it's more than just simply his attribute. But what we're going to see is that the lordship of Jesus is his name. It's the very name of God. The second prayer of the O Antiphons goes like this. You can find it in your bulletin. It's there on the inside cover. It's a prayer to the coming of the Lord. O Lord and leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law on Sinai, come and redeem us with an outstretched arm. It's a beautiful prayer. Its title, Come, O Lord, comes from language used by the Old Testament. In particular, we see this language alluded to by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 11. I want you to look with me at Isaiah 11, verse 4, and listen to who this Lord God is and what the Messiah will be like. Isaiah 11:4, with righteousness, he will judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Now listen to this, verse 5. Righteousness will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. To say that the Messiah will be Lord is to say that he is righteous and he is faithful. He is mighty and he is merciful. And the story behind this title is best told by the story of the Exodus. Exodus chapter three. It's in this story, the story of the burning bush and God coming to a man named Moses to make a promise that he would come down and redeem his people. It's in that story that we see that the same Lord who redeemed his people from Israel is the same Lord Jesus Christ who redeems us from our sins. And so this morning, as we look at this second O Antiphon prayer for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to see what it truly means to confess that Jesus, the Son of God, is Lord first thing I want you to know, I want you to know that the Lord is holy. I want you to look with me at Exodus 3 verse 1. We're told that Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jephro, the priest of Midian, and he led this flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, that is Mount Sinai. Now, if you've grown up around a Judeo-Christian culture, or you know who Charlton Heston is, you've probably heard of Moses. And we know Moses and his story 
gets picked up here in chapter 3 towards the beginning, but we know the very, very beginning of his story is that he was a Hebrew, an Israelite child, who was adopted into Pharaoh's household. And after he killed an Egyptian for attacking a fellow Hebrew, he fled to Midian. And here we pick up his story, keeping watch over his flocks. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. I want you to try your best to imagine this in your mind. Here is Moses keeping watch over his flock. And out of nowhere, the angel of the Lord comes. Now already, that was an amazing sight. But it came in the form of of a burning bush, a bush that was on fire, and yet it wasn't burning up. It wasn't consumed. This is one of the most iconic images of the Bible, the burning bush, a story that has become familiarized to us, not just by the Bible, but by popular culture. An image, the burning bush, that would eventually become the symbol of the nation of Israel. A symbol of the fires of affliction that they have endured throughout their entire history. But you see, I think that the burning bush is not simply an image that should remind us of Israel as a nation. But the burning bush, I think, is an image of God himself coming down the fires of judgment, and yet not to consume his own people. The book of Deuteronomy tells us that the Lord our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, a God who is mighty and righteous and holy. And God had come in the Exodus to bring judgment, but with his judgment he brought redemption. And we notice that here in the burning bush, that God bringing all of his holiness close to a man named Moses. Now, I want you to notice what it says. Look again with me. It tells us that the angel of the Lord appeared. Now, now that word, that phrase is really a title. And in the Hebrew, it's best translated as the angel of the Lord. Not a angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. We see this title used often throughout the Old Testament when we see the very presence of God himself. In fact, the angel of the Lord could be translated literally as the messenger of the Lord. And for centuries, Christians have wondered whether or not this was an angel or perhaps this was a Christophany. In other words, a a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Now, whether or not that's true, what we do know for certain is this. This was no mere angel because of what happens next. Look with me at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. 
Not the angel of the Lord anymore, but we're told it was God himself. God is the one who called to Moses out of the bush. And he says, Moses, Moses. And Moses answers back, here am I. Now the word that we see here in verse 4 for God is the word Lord. Do you see it? And if you see this word Lord, and you hear this word Lord used for God throughout the Old Testament. There are many people who hear that word and think of that word and immediately what they imagine God to be is cold and archaic. He's the Lord. Or or perhaps other people, you, you hear that and you think of his attributes, his kingship, his authority, his majesty, his sovereignty. But again, what I want you to see this morning is that the word Lord is so much more than his attributes. It's a name. And if you're looking in your Bible or you're looking at your bulletin, I want you to notice something about that word. Do you see that it's in all capital letters? Lord. Have you ever noticed that before? Have you ever wondered, why is Lord printed in all caps in my Bible? Why do we see it that way over and over and over again in the Old Testament? Well, the reason is, anytime that you see the word Lord in all caps, it's there in the place of the name Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. But you see, for the people of Israel, they believed that his name was too holy to say out loud. And so instead, they used a different Hebrew word in its place. It's the word Adonai. It means Lord. And so every time you see the Lord in all caps, you're not just reading a description about God. But what you are reading is a placeholder given in reverence for the holiness of God. To say that God is Lord is to say that he is holy He is completely other. He is righteous, and he is just, and he is majestic. And we see that here. And what happens next in verse 5? If it wasn't enough for Moses to see the bush burning and yet not consumed, and they then hear God's voice call out to him from out of the bush, then God says this, verse 5. Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It was a common display of reverence to take the shoes off of your feet when you enter into a holy place. The Lord is telling Moses, this place now, this area around the burning bush, I have claimed it is like my temple. It is holy ground. Bow down and show reverence and take the sandals off your feet. And he goes on and says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And then notice what Moses does. We're told that Moses hid his face and was afraid to look at God. Now, again, I want you to imagine everything that Moses just seen. A burning bush on fire and yet not consumed. But what is Moses afraid of? He's not afraid of this sight. He's not afraid of the burning bush. 
No, he's afraid of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord is holy. And when we fully appreciate the holiness of the Lord, it should fill us with a holy fear. So the Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, the reverence and awe of his holiness. But again, I want you to notice something about the promise of the burning bush, that God in his holiness came down. And he drew near to Moses. God in his holiness came with fire, but he didn't consume the bush because he wasn't going to consume his own people. God in his holiness came down. This is what we celebrate at Advent. And we see it throughout the story of the Bible. God came to Abraham. God came to Moses. God came to David. God came to the prophets. And God has come to us in Jesus This is what we celebrate, and it is our hope, the incarnation of the Son, that God has come to us. And he has come in righteousness and in faithfulness to bring salvation to his people. So the second thing I want you to know, I want you to know that the Lord is our Savior. Exodus 3, verse 7, I want you to look with me. We're told, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I want you to hear that this morning. If any of you are suffering, if any of you are afflicted, I want you to hear these words. God knows our sufferings. He heard the sufferings of his people, their cry for over 400 years. For generations, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. They were oppressed. They were beaten. They were subjected to a ruthless dictator. Exodus 1.13, you don't have to turn there, just listen. This is how Exodus begins. So the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. For 400 years, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And the Lord heard their suffering, and he came to a man named Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt. Exodus 3, verse 8, this is what God says, a promise that he gives to Moses for his people. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey and throughout the Bible. All of redemptive history, the Exodus, becomes the story that captures this great story of redemption. That 
just like the people of Israel were enslaved to Egypt, you and I, we are enslaved to sin. And just like God sent a man named Moses to redeem his people, God sent a true and greater Moses, Jesus, to set us free. This is the language that Jesus used in John chapter 8. We're told that Jesus said to some Jews who believed in him, he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham. Have, we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we can become free? As you hear me talk about the slavery of the people of Israel and the slavery of our sin, maybe you're wondering the same thing. Maybe as you hear those words, either they just kind of like enter one ear and go out the other because you've heard them before, or if you're really thinking about those words this morning, you're wondering, just like these people, how could we be slaves? We live in the United States of America. We know nothing but freedom. That's what we are built around. How could you say that we are slaves? And here's the problem. If you don't recognize the slavery of sin, then you have no need to be set free. And if you have no need to be set free, you have no need for a savior. And this is how Jesus responded. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You see, this is what sin does to us. It corrupts us so much that we think sin is freedom. Freedom from God's rules. Freedom for what he would tell us to do and the freedom to choose our own way. But as we saw last week, there is a way that seems right to a man that ends in death. And when we sin, we think we are choosing freedom. But what Jesus is telling us this morning and what we are being reminded of is that sin actually enslaves us. And this is true not just conceptually but experientially. I want you to think about what sin is like in your own life and the way that it holds sway over your heart. How often after we give in to temptation and we sin, how often it is that we say, I didn't even want to do that. So why did I do it? because we are enslaved to sin. And there is no human being who can free themselves. We see this in the story of the Exodus. Again, Moses comes to God, Exodus 3 verse 11, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? It's a great question. Moses isn't just being humble. He recognizes that there is no one who can do this great task. Just like there's no one who can free themselves from the slavery of sin. God's response in verse 12 is, I will be with you, and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you and I have brought you the people out of Egypt, and you shall serve God on this mountain. 
It's a promise that God will redeem his people. He will free them from slavery. And brothers and sisters, I want you to hear that same promise this morning that once again God has heard the cries of our sufferings. And that is what we celebrate at Advent that in knowing our sufferings, he sent his son, Jesus, to bear our suffering and sin on the cross, to die in our place and to rise again, to give us victory over sin so that we could be truly free. But here's what you have to know. In the same way that slavery feels like freedom, but it's really just sin. The way of Jesus to us sometimes feels like it's slavery. But the Apostle Paul says that's exactly right. And that it is better to be a servant of Jesus rather than a servant of sin. In verse 12 of Exodus 3, we see that once God brought his people out of Egypt, God says, this is the sign that you will serve God on this mountain. Christopher Watkin is a professor and a scholar of modern and contemporary philosophy, an expert in postmodernism. And he says that the story of Exodus is really the story, not just of the Bible, but the story that any person in our postmodern age would be able to get behind. Because it's a story about freedom. It's what our age wants the most. We want to be free. And that story makes sense to our age until this last line. <laughs> you shall serve God on this mountain. That's where our culture says, whoa. <laughs> wait a minute, I want to be free, but I don't want to bow the knee. Advent teaches us once again that the king has come down to us, and we have been invited by grace and mercy to bow the knee and to find freedom in submitting to the lordship of Jesus. So the third and final thing before we sing I want you to know that the Lord is the one true God. Exodus 3, verse 13, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What will I say to them? Now what you need to understand is that for 400 years, the people of Israel were enslaved in a polytheistic culture. And so what Moses is asking here is a pretty basic and fundamental question. He's asking, which God are you? We've, we've heard about all of these Egyptian gods for 400 years, and so when the people say, well, which one of these gods sent you, Moses? What am I supposed to tell them? And this is God's response. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, I am the one true God. I am the one that all of these lesser gods have pretended to be. 
I am the God behind everything that you assume about the world and about culture and about life and about goodness. I am. And you and I live now, once again, enslaved in a polytheistic culture. Not a culture that bows down to Egyptian gods, but a culture that bows down to money and sex and power and prestige and what people think of us and where we live and our zip code. And the list goes on and on and on. And God says, I am the Lord. I am. I am the one true God. Later, the Gospel of John tells us a story, a story about people coming to Jesus. And as these Jews came to Jesus, they said, are you greater than our father Abraham? In other words, who do you think you are teaching and performing miracles and doing all of these things? Do you really think you're greater than all those who've gone before us, even our father Abraham? And Jesus responds this way. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, I am greater than Abraham and greater than Moses and greater than all the prophets. I am the Lord. I am the fulfillment of the burning bush the majesty and holiness of God come down to earth. I am the great deliverer, the one who's come to save his people from the slavery of sin, the Passover lamb. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the law, the bread of life. I am the rock from which the water flowed. I am the great I am. I am the Lord. And this is why John tells us the people picked up stones to throw them at him because they heard exactly what Jesus was saying. So what does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Lord? What does that mean for us 2,000 years later after his first advent to confess that Jesus is the Lord? It is to say that he is the one true God. And a culture that is beckoning for us to worship so many other things. This is why in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said that you cannot say that Jesus was just a wise man or a moral teacher because of what he says right here in the Gospel of John. His claims don't allow us to make that assumption. Either he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. So once again, I ask you, this Advent, what do you really believe? What do you really believe about the person of Jesus? Apostle Paul says that if you confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what does it mean to confess that Jesus is Lord? To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that he is holy. 
that he is mighty, that he is all-powerful, and yet he has come near to us. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that he is the Savior, the one who's come to redeem us from our sins, and to confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that he is the one true God. There are over 5,000 religions in the world today, and Christianity is the only one that says that the one true God has not asked that we go to him, because we never can, but the one true God has come to us. His name is Jesus. He is the King of kings, and he is the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we see your lordship May we see that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the Lord. That you are a God of the covenant of promises that you have kept and that every promise has found their yes and amen in Jesus, your Son. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, would you enable us now to confess with our mouths that you, Jesus, are Lord and believe in our hearts that you, Jesus, rose from the dead to conquer our sins. It is in that power that we now pray that you would come to us once again, that you would light up our hearts, and that you would come one day to make all things new. We ask now that you would do this Do this not only in the season of Advent, but all the days of our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.